I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You're in your closet, I see. I am in my closet. This is like the, the full-on in her shoes moment. Now we're like literally in your... <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say that in this crowd here, many people want to be your close friend. So I don't know oh. if you have a party that needs you know <laughs> bodies to fill or anything, but many people feel they actually already are your good friends, but you just don't know them yet. So here they <laughs> are. Is- that's so nice. Hello. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for reading that summer. We were just finishing discussing which characters from that summer are going to be in your next book. Can you share that? Ah, yes. Okay. So the final book in what I am very ostentatiously referring to as my Cape Cod trilogy is going to be called The Last Summer. It's going to be out next year. And in that summer, we meet Veronica and Sam and Sarah, the, the woman and the kids for whom Diana is working, with whom Diana is working. So we meet them in the 80s when the kids are little, and we're going to see them in the present day. So it's basically 40 years later. The kids are all grown up. They have spouses and children and problems of their own. Veronica is in her 70s, and she's getting ready to finally put this big house on the market because all of her fond hopes of her children and grandchildren coming to visit and spending the summer with her have not come to pass. And so she's getting ready to say goodbye. And her stepdaughter asks to get married there. 
And Veronica says, sounds great. You know, sounds like a, a great way to kind of bookend things. You know, there'll be one last big blowout bash and then she'll put the place on the market and say goodbye to it forever. So that is how the book begins. It starts with an engagement and there's all kinds of hijinks and confusion and secrets and drama along the way and hopefully a very happy ending. Wow. That sounds amazing. So another question, what inspired this book? And I want to know also what inspired the vision for the trilogy? Okay. So what inspired that summer? A couple of of different things. The short and funny answer is I was getting another Jennifer Weiner's emails for a while. And the other Jennifer Weiner, yes, this actually happened. She lives in California. She is a tennis player. She belongs to a synagogue, but different synagogue than mine. So every once in a while, I'd get like a notice, like, you know, carpool assignments or progressive dinner or tennis tournament. And I read these, you know, and then I'd forward them back to whoever sent them and say, you know, I'm the wrong Jennifer Weiner. Sometimes I'd say I'm Jennifer Weiner, the novelist, thinking like I can at least sell a few books off of this. But (laughs) I just got really, I was very interested. I mean, somebody else has your exact name. Like, I don't think there's a world in which you can't be a little curious about who they are and what they're doing and what their life is like. Because I'm thinking this woman's probably about my age because, you know, all of the Jennifers are roughly the (laughs) the same age. We were all born between 1968 and 1974. And I just figured, like, when this happened, I was interested as a real-life participant, but I was also thinking to myself this would be a really remarkable way for two women in a novel to meet each other. And it would be very an interesting way for them to connect and an interesting way for them to sort sort of both reflect one another, but exist in opposition to one another. So that was the first piece of where this book came from. That happened years and years ago when my kids were little and I just kind of filed it away and I thought I will use that someday. That was one piece of it. I mean, obviously, the Me Too movement was another big piece of it. Watching all of that unfold as recently as a couple weeks ago with Bill Cosby getting out of jail on a technicality, just watching man after man after man being accused, being sort of judged in the court of public opinion, watching these guys in some cases be drummed out of public life very briefly, and then just sort of reappear and not seem to have made any changes or processed anything that they had done or made any kind of real world, you know, apology or or repairs to what they had done. That was really interesting. And that was something that wanted to deal with in this book. And then the last piece of it was just like getting ready to send a kid to college. I have a daughter who's 18. I don't know how that happened, but it did. And she's going to college in the fall. And I've just been thinking so much about what the world is like what it was like when I started college low these many years ago in 1987, you know, like how the world has changed, how the world maybe has not changed enough. And what our job is as mothers, as women, as sisters, as wives and daughters and granddaughters and all those things, how do we 
leave the world better than we found it for the next generation of women and the generation after that and the generation after that. So all of those things were things that went into the pot as I was cooking that summer. Well, yeah. Well, speaking of cooking, that was another question that everybody was talking about was the abundance of food-related imagery and all of that. Were you in a particularly cooking state of mind when writing this or what? <laughs> well, I mean, the- everyone was nesting, right? Like I, I wrote the book during the pandemic, during the quarantine. So like, it was like the sourdough bread and the, you know, everybody was baking, everybody was, you know, making desserts, making breads, making everything. And so I was doing a lot of cooking myself, but I was thinking, about the way food connects us, about the way food lets us talk about who we are, how it can sort of shorthand a culture or a religion or a socioeconomic status, all those things. And I I wanted cooking to sort of be the place where Daisy and Diana met each other because Daisy's this home cook, you know, with this like small business that her husband is sort of constantly diminishing and and keeping small on purpose. And Diana, you know, works in the restaurant industry, ends up managing a restaurant, but of course is keeping that a secret. I really liked the idea of food being the place that the two of them connected and the the common language that both of them spoke. And of course, then it just gave me an excuse to like make every roast chicken in the world, which is always a good time. I love to cook. I love to eat. I love going out to eat. Couldn't do a lot of that last year. So it was lots of cooking at home. Excellent. Well, I wanted to introduce you over here to Olivia. I don't know. I'm going to ask her to unmute because Olivia has read every single one of your books and has been following your career. Hello. Hi. I can't believe I'm talking to you. (laughs) Hi. I feel very groupy, I have to say. I've been following you for, you know, your whole career. I feel like we have so much in common and I'm just sorry I'm in California and I can't come to one of your, like to Montfield, New Jersey, where I used to live, where you just were, because I know, you know, you're, I'm following you everywhere. I hope you don't feel creeped out by that, but I'm really really a fan and I love your work. And I just think your transparency and your sincerity is remarkable. Oh, that's very, very nice of you. Thank you very, very much. And no, it's not creepy at all because I feel like, you know, if there are people who are just like super enthusiastic and think I'm really great, it makes up for my teenagers who just like think I am the least cool person who has ever drawn breath and want nothing to do with me. And like, will disavow me if we're ever out in public together. (laughs) Yeah, I I regret to tell you that that doesn't, it lasts longer than teenagerhood. I regret to tell you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a friend in us. Let's put it that way. Really appreciate that. Thank you very, very much for that because man, oh man, it's, it's like, I can't do anything right. Sometimes it feels like, which I think is like, you know, anyone who's ever tried to parent a teenage girl knows what that is like. It's like everything you do embarrasses them. And what can you do? I remember wishing that my mother could read my mind. I'm like, how does she not know? Like, how does she not know that I want her to stand there and not there? She's just, she she should know this. How could she not? And now that I'm a mom of teens, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I don't know. But one of the things that Olivia brought to our attention was from Hungry Heart, your collection of essays, which now everybody is running out to buy. But she was explaining a little more about the backstory of your family and your relationship with your dad and how that affected your writing and relationships and everything. Could you share a little bit about that with us? 
Yeah, I mean, so it's it's a really interesting story. Uh, the older I get and the more people I meet, the more I learn that it's not all that uncommon of a story. My father was a child psychiatrist and he was a really good, really attentive, really hands-on father. You know, not the most forgiving guy. He had really high expectations. And so he was like one of those people that would, you know, you'd bring home a 99 on a test and he'd want to know what happened to the other point and just, you know, set the bar very high and could be very disappointed if you didn't clear it. But, you know, generally was was just, he was very present. He read to me and to my siblings a lot. He encouraged all of us to be readers and to love learning and to love school, you know. And then I'm the oldest of four. And I think that when basically three of us sort of went crashing into puberty all at the same time. It was just completely overwhelming for him. And my parents' marriage fell apart and my dad just kind of left. And, you know, it wasn't, and this was happening a lot in the eighties. I mean, this was kind of like an epidemic at the time, but he didn't leave and say, you know, your mom and I can't stay married anymore, but we both love you. And we're both, we're both going to put you first, which is the thing that parents say these days when they get divorced, it was like, well, you know, the marriage didn't work out. And I am really not that interested in being a father any longer either. So you won't be seeing me very much. And he actually told us that he wanted us to think of him like the fun uncle, which was revolting. And I told him sounded kind of pervy too. And he wasn't real happy with that. So, you know, I didn't see him for, for years, you know, I would see him once in a while and then I wouldn't see him for a long, long time. I didn't know where he was living. He had gotten another woman pregnant and then married her and then divorced her before the baby was born. So just like big mess, lots of drama, you know, and then I sold my first book and published it. And then he kind of showed back up in my life. And by then had sort of the wheels had come off of his life in a, in a really big way. And he was addicted to drugs at this point, which I did not know. Like I didn't know what to look for. And I don't think it was anything even on my radar at that point that this guy who'd like been a child psychiatrist and lived in a house in the suburbs with like a pool and a picket fence, that that was something that could happen. And, you know, he would, he would show up at readings and just be kind of abusive. And it was just horrible, horrible. And, you know, I just was trying to live my life and not have him be part of it because at that point he was really scaring me and I had babies and I just didn't want him anywhere around me. And he died when my younger daughter, Phoebe was three months old. And it was one of those things where like, I was out in LA and I got a call from the police police department. I was his next of kin because he wasn't married at that point. And they said, you know, we found his body at a girlfriend's house and he died of an overdose. And, you know, we, his, it was this whole, it was a mess. It was just really, really awful and, and really traumatic and just took me a long time to try to process and try to make sense of and it just kept getting worse, you know, like my siblings and I, like we laugh a lot because like, what else are you going to do? Like you kind of have to laugh to get through this stuff. And so we would be laughing like, oh, 
dad died of a drug overdose. Can't get much worse than this. And then we were going through his stuff, all of these, like he'd sort of become a hoarder. So just like boxes and boxes of papers and mail he hadn't opened and, you know, magazines and newspapers and stuff he'd never thrown out. We're going through all this stuff. And we found all of these unopened envelopes from the state of Connecticut office of like child support. Right. And and we all just assumed that they had to do with the four of us because he'd been really bad about paying my mother his child support. And then we opened up one of the letters and realized that there was, he had another baby, like yet another baby who was basically the same age as my daughter Phoebe was. And just, you know, <laughs> the whole thing was just a mess and it was really, really awful. And, you know, it just, it just made me think a lot about the things you think you know about somebody, the things that you think that you believe about them, and then what turns out to be the truth. And just all of the things that formed his own life. I mean, because I'm sure there was probably undiagnosed mental illness, untreated mental illness. I think there were things just people didn't know about then. You know, it's just, it's just kind of, it's ongoing. It's not the kind of thing that you ever really get over, I think, for good. But what I'm trying is just to like give my own daughters like a better sense of, you know, men in general and fathers specifically as as they move out into the world. And yeah, it's just, but boy, Father's Day is, is never, never an easy holiday. I'm always glad when that one's over. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect 
therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Moms Don't Have Time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Moms Don't Have Time. I am so sorry. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, no. I feel um, terrible that you had that, you know, to even relive it and the telling and I didn't know. Like I said, the thing that I found, it's like when it happened, I was just like, I'm never telling anybody any of this. Like, this is so embarrassing. I'm so ashamed. Like, how could I have been so clueless and how could he have been so awful? And, you know, but when I talked about it, like the first person I told was, was like, you know, my dad left my mom and he ended up like living in a trailer and he was homeless and it happens, you know? And I just think that like, it's such a cliche, like we're only as sick as our secrets, but like, you know, whatever he did, it wasn't my fault. And I try to feel like, you know, if I can make somebody else feel less alone or more seen or more recognized by talking about what happened, I think that's important. I think that's an important thing to do. So, you know, I, I do talk about it. I do, I do tell the story. So yeah, but thanks. Thanks. (laughs) No, I didn't mean like it had just come out publicly now. And, you know, <laughs> no, I, I obviously, you know, I just meant thank you for confide, you know, talking about it. That's yeah. Like, Francine, maybe give a question. Just a quick couple of things, but just <laughs> so you know, when you talk about stuff like this, it's very freeing. You know, it, it yeah. opens us up and you, you will be surprised how supporting people will be. We all have stuff. So if you talk about it, it is so liberating. I went through addiction with a daughter and I used to try to hide it and it just got worse. Yeah. And now she's fine. But, and she's the one that was a brat, but she came back to be a great human being and yours will too. Get, just give her a sign. Oh, they, yeah. they, she will. I always say that if mine made it to the other side and she's a respectable, conscientious, loving human being, anybody's can turn around. I mean, I'm grateful for that every day. This is my first book of yours. It won't be my last. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. And we all want to be your friend. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Diane is raising her hand down there patiently here. Oh, Jennifer, thank you for sharing that. My parents were divorced and it was in the sixties and we were the only family. So I understand it, but my father was not as present, I don't think, at the beginning. But I have a question for you. Growing up with a father like that, how did that influence your writing as a best-selling author? And also, how did your mother deal with that? You were living with her, yes? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the story that happened was my parents got divorced. My dad was just gone. My mom was basically a single mother for 10 years. Right. And then she fell in love with a much younger woman. Uh-huh. And you know, the four of us were just like in shock and, and we're like, you know, did anybody see this coming? Like, did anybody like notice any signs? And I will just never forget like my sisters and my brother and I, and my sister's like, well, she always had short hair and she would always wear like those, those like boxy LL Bean jackets. And I'm like, Molly, we lived in new England. That was everyone. <laughs> they all had that haircut. They all wore those jackets. And then we're like, yeah, it's like a quiz show almost like New England or gay? Like, how do you know? <laughs> but okay, okay, so yes, I lived with my mom. But in terms of my writing, I mean, 
So Good in Bed, my very first book was very autobiographical. It was about a woman in her 20s who had been like dumped by her boyfriend, whose mother was was newly gay and like would not shut up about it, and whose father had just like fallen off the radar and had been this very loving, present father. And she just didn't know how to make sense of that. And it was about how her, you know, trying to make sense of it. And I think that like many novelists will tell you that fiction is what they, fiction is the tool that they use to make sense of things that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. Whether it's something personal, something that happened in their family, something that happened in their own relationship, something that's happening in the world, whether it's politics or the pandemic or whatever it is, I think 9-11, I mean, the 9-11 novels that we're starting to see now, fiction is where we go. It's where I go. And it's where I went first as a reader, because I was like a voracious reader as a kid. Like I always joke, like I was this like weird little kid. I had no friends and a giant vocabulary. I read all the time. Like books were my safe place. They were my haven. They were my place where nobody judged me. Nobody made me feel bad. So I think that And I also joke a lot that like the thing that made me a writer was having an unhappy childhood because it gives you stories to tell and it gives you something you need to make sense of, you know, it's like Jodi Picoult, who is a friend of mine, had like the happiest, the most normal childhood. And I'm always like, Jodi, how did you ever become a writer with all this normal? Like, (laughs) I joke that like all of the dysfunction and all of the, you know, okay, now your dad's gone. Okay, now your mom's gay. Like all of that was a gift, you know, because it gave me something to try to make sense of in my novels and something to try to figure out. It made me a, a reader and then it made me a writer. So I'm grateful. Like I am. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. You really shared a lot. I appreciate it. (laughs) Melissa, go ahead. Hi, how are you everybody? Thank you so much for having us, Zibby. And thank you, Jennifer, for being here. This is really exciting. I have a confession. This is my first book of yours. That's okay. Thank you. (laughs) However, it clearly won't be my last. I just wanted to say something that some of the other ladies said, and I thought that was really significant to our chat prior to you coming. Your writing is so transparent and the stories that you share are so incredible. I mean, I'm the oldest of four. My dad passed away. I just feel like close to you and I'm grateful for your reading and your writing and thank you for being here. You're really welcome. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I don't know if Zippy told you guys or if any of you guys follow me on social media and know this, but like my mom died on Mother's Day. Like this has just been the most unbelievable year. And I know that books are one of the things that got me through it. And I know that just reading stories, whether they're specifically about mothers and daughters, or they're just like a good book that can sort of take me out of whatever I'm going through. Like books are such a gift and I'm so grateful. I'm grateful that I'm a reader. I'm grateful that my parents were readers and that they modeled that for the four of us. I'm grateful that my daughters are readers. Cause like, I honestly do not know if they could still live here with me if they weren't. I don't know how I would handle that. But thank you for saying that. I'm I'm really glad to hear it. I'm glad my books. Yeah, and I followed your bike journey, and it's just <laughs> awesome. So good for you <laughs> for taking care of yourself and doing what you find is important, and taking a step back. And yeah, we're here for you. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, last last question, Dara. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you. I'm getting teary, and I. 
very rarely cry in public, which I'm working on, by the way. So thanks for the open vulnerability. And there's so much you have shared that I, and I'm sure many other people, if not all of us relate to, and I just want to thank you from my heart. I'm curious as a writer that if your father were alive, would you have even, even your first novel you said was autobiographical, which I think for a lot of fiction writers, that is the case. Did you get any pushback? Did you have any fear of, you know, your mother lashing out? How did you handle all that? I really would, you how, how can you be transparent and still protect your loved ones? And how does that all? That's a great question. I mean, so my dad at that point, he was just so gone. Like, I, I don't, I wouldn't have known how to find him if I'd wanted to let him know about the book or anything like that. But my mother, I felt very differently about. And I, I always say that like Philip Roth famously said, like novelists can't concern themselves with present day people. Like you are writing for the ages and you are writing for posterity and who cares what Aunt Marlene thinks of what you wrote. And I would always read that and think like, I got to go home for Passover, Philip Roth. Like, I don't know where you go, but I got to go home. So I can't have everybody mad at me because it's going to make the Seder super uncomfortable. So when I wrote my first book, which had a gay mom character, I gave the book to my mother and I said, okay, so there's a mom in this book. And she was, you know, inspired by you. And I said, like, I didn't write this to hurt you. I didn't write this to embarrass you. I will change anything that you want changed, except please do not make me change the name of the lesbian women's softball team, nine women out, because everyone thinks that's really funny. So don't make me change that, but I'll change anything else. So I give her the manuscript And then I have the unforgettable experience of sitting in my childhood living room in the house where I grew up, listening to my mother, flipping the pages of my manuscript, and I'm hearing like flip, flip, flip. And then she would scream, Jenny, God damn it! (laughs) I would know. I would know that she had gotten to one of the pages with the mother, but she ended up not asking me to change anything. She said, it's fine. It's all okay. And she just said, I'm going to tell everyone it's fiction. And I'm like, well, it is. And she said, yeah, I'm just going to tell everybody it's fiction. I'm like, all right, friend, whatever works for you, you know, if that's going to like cover your bases, that's fine. So that is how that worked. But I think that every writer has to like figure out her own path through that particular thicket, you know, like you've got to decide like, but the other thing that I found is like the people who you really genuinely use as inspiration for your villains, they don't recognize themselves like ever. Ever. They're just like, who is this awful person who is treating the the heroine so terribly? And, you know, you just have to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that for so many reasons. So much love. Thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for coming. This was amazing. You're amazing. And even more friends now for you, not that you need them. And thank you for entertaining us with your book and your presence and all of it and using all of your your pain for, for good. So. You guys are so welcome. Zibby, thank you for everything and for all you do for like so many women writers. We are all so grateful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Have a great day, everyone. (laughs) See you on social media. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.